Come on. All right, good. Well, man, we are so glad you're here with us this morning. And for those that are streaming this morning, uh, we just want to welcome you into this family here uh, with us. Uh, so uh, a couple of things before we dive into uh, the book of Judges this morning and kind of pick up where we left off last week uh, that are taking place uh, in the life of the journey and some things you need to know about that will help you along your journey here. Uh, so we have a, a, a new app for the journey. It's called Church Center. Uh, and I'd encourage you to download that. There's a couple of things that Church Center will have. It's going to ask you to put in your location, and it'll find our church. There's several other churches in our area that use this app, and so just pick the Journey Church. Um, but in there, um, you'll have the sermon notes from the sermon this morning. If you have that app, you just go over to More, and you'll find those there. It also has our small group Bible study material. And so for those that are involved in community group, you can go ahead of time and look at what we're going to be studying and where we're at on that. And then there's also a digital bulletin in there, and that just has all of our announcements. If you ever forget anything, you can go there or go to our calendar, and it'll tell you kind of what's going on here. Uh, a couple of things we're going to be starting uh, the end of September. Uh, we're going to be starting a Thursday night prayer here on the Journey property. And so we're going to invite people to come pray. We're going to be out, scattered out across the property just praying. Uh, so definitely you'll be able to social distance out there because you can get away from a lot. There's 10 acres here. My gosh, there's lots of space. Um, so we'd encourage you, and the building will be open during that time. And so you'll be hearing stuff about that. Uh, so I encourage you to start thinking about how we can pray for our community, pray for the church. Um, and then the other thing is um, we've decided, so the first uh, Sunday in September, we're going to go ahead and come back to our regular 10 o'clock worship. Uh, part of the reason for that is most people are coming to this service anyway. Uh, we have very few that come uh, at, at, uh, at our, our uh, 12 o'clock or 11 o'clock service. And so, um, so we feel like at least for now we have room that family groups can sit together. We're going to monitor that. If it changes, we can always go back and adjust that, but we just feel like it would uh, make better use of the resources here to do that the first Sunday in, in September um, and kind of move that way. So uh, so just want to remind you that. I'll, I'll put another reminder out next week, kind of uh, what that's going to look like for us here at the Journey. But that'll be the first Sunday in September at 10 o'clock. Okay, so Judges. Man, it doesn't ever get boring in the book of Judges, right? And I think it'd be really easy to leave the book of Judges. I was actually home for a couple of days this week checking on my mom and dad and, and uh, I'm talking about Judges. And my dad said, man, that's a really dark book, Mark. I said, you're right. It seems dark and oppressive, right? But I think the thing that we gain out of the book of Judges has great hope. And I, th I don't want you to miss the hope uh, that we take out of these stories, okay? And, and also the thankfulness that we don't live during that time. We live in a time that we have a resurrected Lord and Savior. And so everything in the Old Testament, if you haven't noticed that, it points towards Jesus Christ. It points towards the coming of our Savior. Um, so we're going to, we're skipping a little bit of text this morning, but part of that is for time because we have so much text to cover. Uh, so we ended at the end of chapter 8. So let me just give you kind of an uh, update on where we're at. So um, you'll notice that Gideon uh, has now died. Uh, he amassed actually a great amount of wealth during his time. A lot of it was he didn't want to be king, but he wanted to act like a king. He had a whole harem. He had like 70 sons. Um, and so he had this one son, uh, Abimelech. And Abimelech um, thought that people should name him their king, him their ruler, right? And so the brothers didn't quite see things eye to eye. So he went to the people of Shechem, and he like got these mercenaries to go kill all of his brothers. Sounds like a good brotherly thing to do, right? And so he does that, but one escapes, which is Jotham. And Jotham goes out and, and, and from, from a, a peak somewhere above the city. He didn't want to get too close to his brother because he might kill him. But he hollered out to the city, you do not want Abimelech as your king or your ruler. He's going to oppress you. He's going to do all these bad things to you. You really don't want that. Well, they wouldn't listen to him. And so Jotham kind of runs away after his long speech. Uh, and then Abimelech began to rule over for three years uh, over the, the people, and he ruled pretty heavily over them. And uh, so this, uh, this other group of people uh, by the name of Gaul came in and, and told the people of Shechem, they said, why are you letting this guy bully you? Why are you letting him rule over you? 
okay? They say, you should really rise up. Well, some of the upper class of Shechem, they didn't like that because they kind of liked things the way they were because as long as they were good to Abimelech, he was good to them. So they went and told him what was going on. And he didn't like it very much, so he came down to Shechem and began to slaughter people. He didn't just slaughter the Gauls. He slaughtered the people of Shechem, the very people who came and told him. And he found out that the leadership were all huddled in this tower. And so he goes up and goes into this tower, and a woman with a large stone throws it and crushes his head. He's not quite dead, almost dead, which is mostly dead. And so he calls his armor bearer and says, come, if you didn't get the pun there. And he said, Run me through the sword because I don't want it to be said that I was killed by a woman, right? It's the kind of guy he was. So this brings us to chapter 10. That was a quick run through of chapter 9. Uh, so we have another, uh, at the beginning of chapter uh, 10, after Abimelech um, had, had, you know, gone through all of this, we have a, another really short Jair. He's a uh, Giladite, okay? He rose up. He actually uh, was a judge for 22 years. We don't know much about him. But then we pick up in verse 6. And this is what I'm going to read this morning. So if you have your text, make sure you're open to Judges chapter 10, beginning in verse 6, in case you got lost in there somewhere. So the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Asherahs and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amorites, and the gods of the Philistines. You think they could add any more gods in there, okay? If you're counting them, that's, that's a lot of gods. They're serving all of these gods, okay, at the same time. Um, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Sounds familiar, right? And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed people of Israel. Um, and that year, for 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, while in Gilead and the Ammonites crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, Why? We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and, and the um, and the Mananites, and, and oppressed you, and cried out to me, and I saved you from their hands. So what he's doing is recounting history. So it goes through this whole history lesson again. Why do we need history, right? We talked about that last week. We get a whole history lesson of all that God's done for them. He said, I did all of these things for you. So this is what he says in verse 14. He says, go and cry out to those gods to save you. He says, go cry out. Okay, to the gods that you say you want to worship in your time of distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned due to us. And this is the second time they've come. Whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and, and served the Lord. And he became uh, impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms. And they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. So there is a danger in our lives when we have a strong faith, but a really poor theology, when we have a weak theology, right? So without good theology, you can have all the faith in the world. Okay, and we're going to talk this morning about what theology is. That scares people. The minute I say theology, I just see these blank looks, right? People just zone out. Why is theology important? Well, it's important here because the spiral of sin obviously keeps coming back, right? So it matters what we know about the Bible, what we believe, right? See, the people, again, it said, did what was evil inside of the Lord. They, and he says they are sold into the hands of their enemies. What does that mean? Well, this is a, a strong phrase when you see something about selling right it's like uh it's like when you sell a car a new owner gets to do what whatever he wants with your automobile because it's not yours anymore right 
It's not your car anymore. We, we sold, uh, my pride and joy was my Firebird I had at the end of high school and during college. And I loved it because the dashboard lit up orange. I don't know why I like that. I'm, I don't know, I'm an Aggie now, I guess, so I can't like orange. But anyway, it lights up orange, and it had the flip-up headlights, you know, and I felt like Knight Rider in it, right? I love this car. And so I, I sold it to one of my uh, uh, teenage girls that was in our youth ministry, and she just destroyed this car. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my gosh. I look at the headliners falling down. There's scratches on it. I'm going, she didn't take care of the car. But see, when you sell something, you don't have any right over it. And so this is what God did. He sold them into the hands of their enemies. See, the selling of Israelite in the hands of their enemies does not mean that he has broken his promise with them. So this is the thing. God never forgot Israel, okay? And he still doesn't today. If you read throughout history, he's not forgotten his people. He doesn't forget us. See, Judges describes not a circle, but a spiral of sin. So here you've noticed how every time Israel ended up adopting a God, what happened? God sold them into slavery to those people, that very God-driven people that, that they said they wanted to serve. See, it's easy to see a futility in this. In fact, I was talking to somebody the other day just about the futility in our world. Why do people keep going through this cycle? Why don't we go back to this cycle over and over again? See, if someone finds their identity or purpose in something other than God, okay? So let's say, for instance, relationship. They're going to sacrifice everything, even if that relationship has failed. They're going to do whatever they can. They're going to say, I need to find another relationship, or maybe I need to find another spouse. So when we move into worshiping another relationship, okay, then that spiral keeps going. And so what they're doing is they're, they're moving into a different relationship other than that of God. So if you look at Romans 1, 23 through 25, it says what happens when we exchange the image of God, okay, the immortal for the mortal? When do we, when do we worship the created instead of the creator? See, see, the result of that, and literally the Greek word for lust, okay, means to be, have an overwhelming drive and an enslaving, uncontrollable desire for that thing. Remember, we ended with Gideon building this ephod, right? And so it said everybody came to his house, and they worshiped this thing, and it said they whored after it. Literally, they lusted after it. Have you ever lusted after something? Yeah, we all have. There's something we lust after, or we really want, or we desire Okay, so that means we have an overwhelming desire that then enslaves us. So one of the main themes in this story of Jephthah will be that there is a rot that is settled in at the core of humanity. Okay, and um, I don't be too gross here this morning, but there are certain diseases and things if you get, they literally rot from the inside out. And that's what's happening spiritually to his people. So many of us, some this mattered not. You were probably glad sports were gone for this long. But when sports finally came back, people were gravitating toward anything. In fact, people that hated golf will watch golf just because there's sports on TV, right? So I began to watch this. I remember when uh, the NBA basketball came back. I'm not a huge basketball fan, but I, I've followed some teams through the years. And I remember the Orlando Magic had one uh, Ford on their team. His name is Jonathan Isaac. And everybody else was, was kneeling, right, um, in protest uh, at the National Anthem. And he was one of the only ones in television caught him. He's standing, right? And so they asked him after the game, why did you stand? I guarantee you the answer he gave was not what they were expecting. He says, I bow the knee only to one king, and that's King Jesus. And he says, he says not that I, I'm trying to make a political statement or anything like that. In fact, he explained his position he said, he said that for me, whether, whether it's black lives or whether it's, um, you know, um, supporting this or supporting that, he says, to me, it goes against the very nature of the gospel of Christ. Because the gospel of Christ was for everyone. He says, we all have been saved uh, or have an opportunity to accept the grace of God. And so this is what he says. He says, we all have things that we do that are wrong. He says, sometimes... It gets to a place where we're pointing fingers at who's wrong or who is worst. Who's the worst, right? 
He says, um, he says, so I feel like the Bible tells us that we all fall short of the glory of God. He's saying this on national TV. We all fall short of God's glory. That, he says that will help bring closure together. He says it's the only thing that can get us past what's going on in our world today. And he said to get past anything that's on the surface, you have to dig down to the heart of a man or woman. You have to get to the heart of mankind. See, I believe the danger uh, that we're faced with, not only today, but Jephthah's going to be faced with as we read, is there's a danger of a me-centered approach to our theology. Okay, well, you've heard me talk about this. Um, so let's, uh, let's look real quick at the beginning uh, of Jephthah. It's the beginning of chapter 11. And so now Jephthah, the Giladite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in a land of Tob, and a worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Okay, so... Jephthah's life began pretty poorly, right? And we're going to talk about that in a minute. So, so he had, had a poor upbringing. He, he, his brothers kicked him out, you know, fell into organized crime. I mean, went through all of these things. And so he had learned to look out for number one. And so I want you to remember that because that's going to come back in the story this morning. So the people of Israel, we talked about, did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So count the number of gods they served. Okay, in society. So God does not come to save the people immediately. He tells them, go and serve those gods. Go and ask those gods for help. See, it appears that God does not take their confession seriously, their first confession, right? Because they're just crying out, saying, God, help us, please. Look what we got ourselves into. Get us out of it, right? See, Judges 10.10 then says, they now recognize that they have sinned. When they cried out to God. So idolatry and slavery, they kind of go hand in hand. Okay? So God says to the person who worships money, what? If you want to live for money instead of me, then that's going to rule your life. If, if, you, if you make, um, uh, we talked about earlier, relationships. So if that's controlling you and controlling your emotions, if popularity controls you, that's going to rule your life. So I think it all comes down to what's ruling your life. What, what makes the decision for us? See, let's see how merciful it is to you. How effective is it in saving and guiding and enlightening your life? I can tell you, there are times when, guess what? God does like he did in Romans 1. It says, God gave them up to their own debased mind. He said, okay, go ahead, try that. I think he does that with our culture, too. I think there are times God just gives us up to that. He says, you know what, go try those gods for a while. See if they really satisfy you. See if they really bring anything meaningful into your life. So a me-centered approach to theology leads to regret, not repentance. Okay? You notice the first time they went to him, they just wanted help, right? They didn't, they didn't say, hey, you can do with us what you want to, or they didn't give up any of their gods. See, this must have been a crushing blow to the Israelites, because who were they? Man, they were God's chosen people. They were Abraham's seed. They said, remember us? Remember who we are? God, we're your people. We're the ones that you promised us to. See, never forget that the Lord is patient. But also remember, he's patient to a point, right? Have you ever learned that um, with your mom and dad? I, I knew the envelope I could push my mom and dad to and where the point of no return was, right? I don't know if your kids learn that, right? They know the point that can push you, maybe, and sometimes they don't. But when we cross that line, okay, patience runs out. Um, look at what it says in Romans uh, 2, 4. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance of patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So two things, okay? We presume on God's kindness and his goodness and his nature, but realizing in that kindness, 
It's all to lead us to repentance, and sometimes that's through struggles and suffering. And then in verse 5, he says, But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's judgment. I believe people today, I believe we do the same thing. We store up the wrath of God on our lives. And we wonder, how did we get here? How did our life get here? See, he often gives people, especially members of his covenant community, many chances to repent. And you look during the old covenant, he did that over and over and over again. But 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10, I love Peter's take on it. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is a one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. So some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. There it is again, right? So what's God's end goal is repentance, your repentance and mine. So he says, He's not slow in fulfilling his promise, right? But, anytime in Scripture you see a but, you, you got to listen, right? So in verse 10 he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So he's saying he's, he's patient to a point, but the day is coming when that's done, right? There, there's no more room. There's no praying you out of purgatory into heaven. There's nothing there, okay? Because there's a clear delineation between the truth and things that are not true. So look at the first appeal. So they came to him and they said, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken you, right, for Baal. Well, that's obvious, right? God's going, tell me something I don't know. I, I know what you've done. But note, the plural bell denotes multiple gods. What do we have here is an admitting that there's something wrong, right? That we messed up. But it doesn't completely take ownership for it. Because they don't initially, how do we do that? We do that all the time. We don't take ownership for our actions. And we live in a world today, people, we just don't take ownership over anything in our lives. And so they didn't take ownership for their situation. So this is what happens in cultural theology. So I want you to know, if I ever put like an X in there, that's you fill in the blank, okay? Uh, so this is cultural theology. I want you because I want, need you to give me X, okay? I need you to do this for me. We're revealing that X, whatever that is, is our real ultimate God, okay? So we're saying in our own idea, theology is what you believe about God, okay? So you're saying, I want you to do this for me and, and just get me out of this situation. See, they send their regrets to God, but they don't repent, See, a God-centered approach to theology leads to sacrifice, not selflessness. Uh, or it leads, leads uh, to theology, leads to sacrifice, not selfishness. So we, we, selfishness is that act of, it's all about me, what do I want? Sacrifice, and this is the second appeal, look at it. We have sinned, and when have you ever prayed this? Do whatever seems good to you, God. Have you ever prayed that? God, do whatever seems good to you to do to me. There are on my list about four or five, I'd say probably dangerous prayers, and that's probably one of them. God, do whatever you want to me, whatever seems best. I love the end of it, though, but please deliver us. <laughs> so they're saying, hey, do whatever seems best to you, God, but we'd rather you deliver us, okay? So they put away, and this is the key here. What did they do? They said they put away their foreign gods. And they started serving God. This is when it gets down to the right biblical theology. So the right biblical theology says this. I want you, regardless of whether you give me X, Y, or Z, whatever those things are, God, regardless, if you do these things for me, I'm going to love you anyway. I'm going to serve you regardless. See, that's not a popular theme in society today. And I'll tell you, in many churches, that's not a popular idea, Right? Because we live in, in an idea that God's here just to bless us, just to give us things, just to get us out of difficult situations. See, they got rid of their foreign gods. So what's the practical application here? Well, we are all wearing tinted colored glasses of some kind or another. We are all uh, products of our social upbringing, okay? Now, now, don't leave me here, okay? We're all a product of our culture, um, so, I'll prove this to you. So there was a, uh, 
100 North American students were asked to read the parable uh, of uh, the prodigal son, okay? Only six that read the parable mentioned the famine that happened that brought the prodigal son to his knees, okay? Only six out of those hundred even mentioned the famine. Guess what? They told that same parable to 50 Russian leaders. That same parable, 42 out of the 50 Russian leaders mentioned the famine and actually highlighted it in their story. Why? Because during World War II, the Russians experienced famine. They understood what that was. I mean, that, that brought realness to this life. How many of you um, have maybe sat in a Bible study or somewhere and a leader asks you a question and says, what does this passage of Scripture mean to you? Okay, I'll tell you, if you lead a Bible study, you need to be very careful of doing that. Okay, in fact, I would tell you not to do that because what that begs is there, there's more than one meaning to Scripture. Many times what that says is, I'm not talking about application, Okay, I'm talking about the meaning of the text, okay? That it can mean one thing to you, but it can mean something completely different to somebody else, okay? So a, a better thing would be if we said, what does the text say? What does Scripture say? Now, the application may be different. And you look at the difference between the Russians and the North American students, right? They had a different application, okay? But that story's the same. It, it doesn't change. See, the problem happens when we make ourselves the center of, of our, our Bible. We put ourselves at the center of this. You know how most people read Scripture? And I get this all the time. Somebody says, they'll text me and say, Hey, Pastor Mark, I want to know things that apply to my life in this area. Well, that's a, that's a legit request. I can give them things that, that possibly apply to their area that, according to Scripture. Okay, but you know what most people do? If it doesn't apply or they don't think it applies, then they just skip over it. They don't talk about it. They probably wouldn't read the book of Judges because they say, that didn't reply to me. Why should I read the book of Judges? See, this is what we do in our theology. We say it's not relevant to us. And this leads us to another big word, not to get too theological with you, but it's relativism, right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. That's the big heart of the problem. That's, that means that... All roads lead to the same place. There's not one God. Okay, there's not one way to salvation. Simply put, I am not the focus of the Bible. Who's the focus? Jesus Christ. I am not the focus of my Bible. Yes, as God's image bearers, we play an important role in the Bible's history, and it talks about that. But if, if the first question I ask uh, of a biblical text is, how can you apply this to my life? So we don't come to the text looking for the application. We want to know, what does the Word say? What does the Bible say? And you know who gives you the application? The Holy Spirit living inside of you. It'll remind you. It'll convict you. It'll tell you. See, so the great commandment the new uh, they knew that they knew to love the lord their god with all their heart all their soul but this is where we mess up we detach our mind and this happens all the time so we, we listen to lots of preachers lots of pastors lots of writers but we don't research it for ourselves we just believe whatever they say see the first attempt was trying to make the most out of a bad situation Okay, for the Israelites. But the second one, they didn't rush to the application to their life. The second one, they, they, they said, hey, do what seems best to you. And guess what? We need to get rid of this stuff in our life so you can lead. Number two, the danger of our culture-shaped approach to theology. There's an extreme danger of a culture-shaped approach to how we see the Bible. D.A. Carson wrote this. He said the key to understanding how the church should relate to culture is to have a strong grasp of the major themes in biblical theology. So this is what's happened. They said the church and the Christian today has become less intellectual. Okay, now don't fade out on me. I'm not saying you have to go to seminary or get a, 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 a you know, degree in Bible or anything like that. Okay, that's not what I mean by intellectual. But what they do is they detach their brain. See, culture... What it is, is the customary beliefs and social forms and the things that affect our lives. And so it's much like that story of the prodigal son, right? No, the North American teenager, they hadn't experienced, experienced famine. They had everything done for them. So they just kind of blanked out on that. That meant nothing to them. But to the Russians, it meant everything. See, a Jephthah, now let's go back to his dysfunctional story. 
He was a child of an illegitimate prostitute. Okay, that's a great start, right? Kicked out of the house at a young age. On behalf of his brothers, his half-brothers didn't like him. They kicked him out. He fell into a band of outlaws involved in organized crime. It'd be the modern-day mob, right? Yet God raises him up to be a savior of Israel. There's got to be some irony in there somewhere. He takes this guy, right? So this is what Jephthah knows. Okay, let's go back to what he knows. He knows he can worship seven gods, and it's okay, because that was okay during that time for them in their own mind, okay? The feeling of betrayal and lack of true love had escaped him. He didn't understand that, okay? Even the idea of real family are, are stretched for him. Does that sound familiar to a lot of stories today? Yeah, absolutely. Now, his brothers call him when they are in need of his services. So listen to what happens. And this is irony here. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 11. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the, elder, the elders uh, of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight with the Ammonites. Right? So now they remember Jephthah. You know, they, they think he's a better leader than anything we have. And probably because of his connections with this mob-like mentality, he had some resources. He had some things that they needed. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now that you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight with the Ammonites and be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, he said, if you bring me home again to fight with the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. So this is the ironic thing. So now he says, if you bring me back and I fight for you, you make me your leader. I want to be in charge, okay? I'm not just going to come do this out of the goodness of my heart, right? So they bring him back, okay? And the first thing, beginning in verse 12, he goes through this time of diplomacy with Amorites. So he begins to go back and forth with Amorites, and he says, um, he says hey, we can work something out. This doesn't need to lead to war, right? And, and the Amorites said, no, we were here first. Well, so what happens? He gives them a whole, he gives them a whole history lesson. No, actually, we were here first. God gave us this land, right? And so he tells them, first, they were there first. He gives them a history lesson, okay? He tells them about, about you know, how God had, had journeyed with them out of the wilderness and, and had given them all of these things into their hands and how he had taken them and, 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 and to possess this land. And so he gives them this whole history lesson, and, and, and eventually, at the end of all of this, Amorite said, we don't care. We're here. We're going to dominate you, and we're going to take charge over all of this. Um, it's safe to say that Jephthah had been shaped by his culture. Okay, I want you to think what shapes your life. What are the things that shape your life? See, this goes to remind us that dysfunctional backgrounds doesn't disqualify us from the kingdom of God. What would happen if dysfunctional lives disqualified us? And the majority of us in here would be like, we'd be out, right? God couldn't use me. Dr. Ashford um, of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, he, he gave an analogy uh, in a book he wrote called Every Square Inch. He said, there are three ways to view our culture. And I want you to think about this this morning. He said, the first one is Christianity against culture. Okay, so the church stands on one side of the line and, and the culture stands on the other. Okay, so they're opposing forces. So this view many times Christianity is in their daily lives feel like they're in a in a in a, um, uh, a martial arts battle. Right. Or they've been put in the cage. Right. With mixed martial arts. And they're just battling all the time. The problem with this view is it's too easy to fall into legalism. We see ourselves as fighting against people instead of against sin. We forget that we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against Satan and what he wants to do to our world. Many times people know what we're against, but they don't know what we're for. This can be a dangerous place to be. 
The second thing he says is Christianity of culture. So this is the other extreme. We build churches that tend to cater to culture. So then the church mirrors culture. It looks just like it. So without God, culture raises up idols in his place. Celebrities, politicians, sex, wealth, power, even productivity. Can church embrace culture without it uh, bringing up idols in their life? I don't think so. I don't think we can embrace culture that way. The better way he says we should live is Christianity in and for culture. Okay? So we, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. So what does that mean? We are there to affect it for change. To be a transforming light in the world. I mean, to be a light on the hill, right? To be set apart. So Christ who lives in us, in our midst, is for the good of culture. We need to let them know that Jesus is out for their good. We live a life characterized by obedience and witness of the gospel every day of our life. On the eve of the crucifixion, what does Jesus pray to the Father in John 17? He says, Father, you can thank Jesus for this. He says, I pray that you not take them out of the world, but leave them in the world. He says, I want you to leave them there. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And this is important. Sanctify them in the truth of your word of truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified with truth. Okay? So what's happening here? The Ammonites are wanting to go to war against Israel. So they bring in Jephthah. God raises him up. And it says that the Spirit of the Lord, in verse 29, said, then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. It's only a couple of times in Judges it says that the Spirit of the Lord was on him. And so he comes. He prepares for battle. And then in verse 34, probably one of the more difficult stories in Scripture. It says, And Jephthah came to his home at Mizbah, and behold, his daughter can't... Oh, no, let, let me finish the story. Sorry, I've got to go above that. You'll get no context out of it. In verse 30, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of my doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hands, and he struck them from from Aor to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Kerim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came home. And at Mizbah, and behold, his daughter came out to greet him with tambourines and with dancing. I want you to see this picture. His daughter comes out of the house. She's just excited to see dad. He's back from battle. She has her tambourines. She's dancing. She's heard they had a great victory. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes. And he said, alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, and I think this is interesting, she said, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. So, this story, okay, so first Jephthah makes a vow in haste, one that, um, honestly, God wouldn't have him make. God would not have him make this kind of vow. In fact, God didn't ask him to, right? God just, he said, filled him with the Spirit. God told him, I mean, he gave him the tools of what to do. See, a culture-shaped approach to theology leads to a thing we call syncretism, okay, and, and let me tell you what syncretism is. is a combination uh, of other religious cultures with our own, okay? So this is what's happening here. In, in pagan cultures, guess what? Human sacrifice was okay. 
They did it. And then the reason they, they did human sacrifices was to, to appease the gods. So they would do these sacrifices that brought appeasement to God, okay, and to their gods. And, and so for him, it was okay. So the two questions that are asked, first, what do you expect to come out of his door? And did he actually kill his daughter, okay? Two very good questions. So some theologians have said um, he expected an animal sacrifice to come out of his doors. I don't believe that's true. First, for one thing, in this part of the country, and during that time, the animals would not have been inside the house, okay? I think he did believe at that time that human sacrifices were okay because that's, that's how his culture taught him, right? And he hadn't been discipled yet to know any differently, so he thought that was okay. Some have said that... Um, he didn't actually sacrifice his daughter because you read on, it talks about how he gave her months to go up and mourn over her virginity that she was going to be offered to the temple uh, just as a servant in there. But I think if that were the case, why would he be so mournful and rip and tear his clothes? I mean, it's a father in deep mourning. See, it's very dangerous when we bring other cultures into Christianity and try to make them meld together. It's one of those ideas I, I talked about this morning on, on the vlog I did about when we say all gods are the same or all roads lead to the same place, okay? My God is not the same God of Allah, okay? My, my God is not even the same God of, of those that are not Christians that are Jewish, okay? Because um, they, they believe that, that well, my, my Savior, Jesus, is not the same. Let's put it that way. So Jesus, in, in, in um, if Muslim culture and in Jewish culture, was a, a good teacher, okay? He was a prophet, okay? So they believe that. But if I say that all gods are the same and that, that Jesus is the same to everybody, then that would mean Christianity has a false doctrine, that Jesus is not the only way to salvation, the John 14, 6 is completely wrong where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? And so, so he refers to God here, notice, as Lord. Lord means Jehovah, okay? Jehovah, the covenant name of Israel for God. It says more than any other person in the book of Judges, he uses the Lord. In, in eleven thirty, he says, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, okay, a covenant. So then the greater question, did God expect him to fulfill this? Did God really expect him to kill his daughter? I don't believe so. I believe, it's, I believe for, for Jephthah, okay, it's a misunderstanding of what God required of him. See, Jephthah's flaw was the same flaw many of us have today. We mix culture with our upbringing, and we get a completely different God. See, a culture-shaped approach to theology leads to all these flawed assumptions in our life. So there are two things we learn. First, Jephthah had definitely be de has been desynthesized by his culture. That's where I want listen to me, church. I believe Christianity as a whole today has be de been desynthesized by their culture. We gave statistics last week how Christianity has declined significantly, especially among uh, the millennial group, those you know, 25 to 35, 36. Why is that? I believe they've been desynthesized by their culture to believe that Jesus is not the only way to salvation, that there are other ways, that they can pursue all these different ways. Jephthah had been infected by pagan moral codes, but also by the pagan world around him. He understood God's character, and that's why he did it, because he understood the wrath of God, right? He understood that God was a wrathful God, but he forgot the mercy of God. See, the God of the Bible only wants one kind of sacrifice. That's self-sacrifice. We offer God the lordship of our life, and we lay ourselves on the altar of God. That's why Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you present your life as a living sacrifice. In view of God's mercy, we present ourselves to him. Why did Jephthah keep the horrible vow? I don't think anybody will ever really know, to be honest with you, because I, I, I can't fathom that. There's only one other time we even have a picture of this happening, and this was with, with Isaac, right, when Abraham took him up on the mountain. But guess what? He said, the Lord will provide. Jehovah will provide. He had the faith that God would provide the perfect sacrifice. He didn't know how it was going to happen, 
But he knew God would provide. See, God provides for us every day. See, we live in a society today that's in a day with churches on every corner. You can pick your flavor this morning. You could have picked anywhere to go to church. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. But biblical content in many churches is lacking. Why is that? Well, most evangelical Americans don't know very much about the Bible or about God, period. Because we don't read the Bible. We're not in His Word. See, much of what is published in books and blogs and TV programs and podcasts reveal the same thing that happened to Jephthah. Just a false understanding of this book. See, I believe two things. I believe we're far more affected by our culture than the Bible today. I believe we let culture lead us. Okay? What blind spots do you have today? You just have blindly been led down. You find, I hear people say this all the time. I finally, real, when I read the Bible, I realized that wasn't true. So what the Bible teaches. See, God's people struggle to believe in a God of grace. And now I think that's what Jephthah missed, a God of mercy, a God of grace. See, faith without strong theology does great damage in our lives. It's much like C.S. Lewis. Um, I'll close with this more. He, he grapples with this in a book called Beyond Personality. By the way, if you've never read C.S. Lewis, you should go read some of his stuff. Mere Christianity is on the top of my list. Great book of apologetics and theology. It'll teach you a lot. He recounts time when he was delivering a lecture to a group in in a Royal Air Force base. Um, Right in the middle of the lecture, an old grizzled sergeant stands up, He says, I got no use for all that talk about God. He said, mind you, I believe in God. I felt him out there in the desert. And if you experience God, you don't need to talk about God because I just experience him every day. It's much like, as C.S. Lewis goes on, you can go, well, you have to drive a little ways to get the Atlantic Ocean. You can go experience the Atlantic Ocean. You can feel the spray of it, the wind in your hair. You can experience that great body of water. Just uh, being there, go out on a boat on the Atlantic Ocean. But he says, it's kind of a letdown when you come back to a piece of paper on a map. And you look at it and you're going, okay, I see it. I know it's big. But, but I was over there. I felt the spray. I felt the, the feeling of that, right? See, one is based on experience. And the other in that map is based on thousands of people, not just your own. And a people better, more qualified to analyze. And secondly, he said, if you want to get any place, the map is absolutely essential. This book, six, six books, so this was put together, okay, over hundreds of years. And I don't know, maybe one day we'll, we'll come into the validity of the Bible. Why, why the Bible, you can trust it. You can believe it, right? But many people put this book down, and they don't ever pick it up. Because they feel like it's a bunch of old stories, that stuff in, in Judges, it has nothing to say to me, it doesn't mean anything to me, I just wonder what applies to my life. And it's much like the Atlantic Ocean, we can go out and experience it, right? But I know that that map took hundreds of years to put together, and there are men from all over the place that investigated, that mapped it out, and I can trust the accuracy of that, but even more than that, I can trust the accuracy of this book right here. I would ask you, where are you at today? See, the greatness of God is most clearly displayed in His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's all for His glory. Everything is for His glory. See, the question is is doubly crucial in our day because no one is as popular in the U.S. today in, in some respects as Jesus, whether it's popularity, poor popularity, or good popularity. You say, Jesus... You're going to get a conversation. And not every Jesus is the real Jesus. But if you love God with your whole heart and your whole soul, but you don't love Him with your mind as well, you're missing the key point and one of the key integral parts of being a believer. It's too much at stake not to do that. So my, my challenge to you this morning is learn to love God with your mind. Learn to love Him with your mind too as well. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you. God, that you have given us, God, a great, big, beautiful mind with a capacity to know you. And as your spirit fills our life, Father, 
We can know you intimately in so many ways. And Father, I know even in this time, Father, with the virus going around, it's so difficult to even come together and just to meet. And, and God, there's so many things that weigh on us. And many of us have maybe even just pulled back from church altogether. We've just said, man, I'm, I'm scared. I'm, I'm concerned. And, 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 and a lot of those are valid concerns, Lord. But many times we forgot what is most important, and that's you. Father, if we leave this world without knowing you, then we have greatly, greatly missed the gospel. And so I pray this morning, Father, that your spirit would fall on each person, each heart, each life, each soul. That you transform us, God, from one degree of glory into another. And that there would be those this morning, Father, even listening online, Father, that maybe have been living their life lately for themselves. And they forgot what it means to live their life for you, to be ruler and Lord of their life. And so, Father, my prayer today is that you would take us, God, renew our minds in the strength of your gospel, and that there would be no other God besides you in our life. In your most gracious and precious and holy name, we pray. Amen. So I don't know where you're at this morning I, I mean that's a lot to take in when you consider what God has done for us so you move from the book of Judges the story of Jephthah to our present day where we're at right now and the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is just as much king today as he was then right and he rules and he reigns this world and he desires a relationship for you this is what's different is now you can enter into that relationship. And Scripture reminds us if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us of all our sins, and He'll cleanse us of all of that. And He'll take us and make us new. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've been following the rules and the rituals, or you're like Jephthah. You've had false assumptions about God, and today is the day of salvation for you. And so wherever you're at, I mean, you don't, you're welcome to come down. I'd love to pray with you, but you can do that right where you're at. Maybe we don't kneel enough like the basketball player says he kneels before king jesus maybe we need to just kneel before the throne of god this morning and we can ask his forgiveness on our life here we're gonna take some time this morning to take communion together it, it was a gift to the church okay we call it an ordinance why do we call that because there are two of them that were ordained by our lord and savior jesus christ and this is one of those and he said that as often as you do this, remember me. So we're going to remember his death, burial, and resurrection. So we have little cups. They're self-contained, so you don't have to worry about anything. There's cellophane on them. They're all prepackaged, so we're going to be safe this morning. But we want to invite you, if you're a follower of Christ, let's commune together. Would you come to the table, and let's get the elements this morning.